This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Homeland Security Department is closer to having more of its component headquarters in one location. It's moving ahead with plans to build a new headquarters for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, on the former St. Elizabeth's campus in southeast D.C. The CISA headquarters advances a project that dates to the George W. Bush administration. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And, Jory, let's talk about that new CISA headquarters. What are they getting and where is it going? What they're getting is new construction, which is a big deal for the campus. It's always been a tricky balance to weave those new projects in with the existing historic campus, which dates back, you know, quite some time. Some of those elements predate the Civil War. What they are getting is a 600,000 square foot headquarters, and it's a really interesting contemporary design. The best way to picture it is a bunch of long shipping container-like structures that are stacked on top of each other. And that kind of feature helps address some of the sloping issues with this campus. It's got some real steep inclines and it helps bridge the divide between some of the lower elevations of the campus and some of the higher elevations of the campus, in addition to weaving some of the newer elements of the campus with some of the older elements of the campus. And CISA's headquarters is going to be built to achieve LEED Platinum certification and will include solar panels on its roof as well as green roofing concepts as well. And probably waterless urinals also. This is under construction or it's under plans or what's the status of it at this point? So the National Capital Planning Commission last week gave approval to the final plan of it. So the site of it is all mapped out. No construction's been going on just yet, but now it has that blessing from the commission to move forward with this new construction. And as you mentioned, it's old, the site that is, it goes back to the Civil War era, the development of the hospital there. So there must be some challenges with construction up there, given the slope and the historic nature of it. Yeah, there are no shortages of hoops to jump through this project. The construction of the CISA headquarters will require the demolition of three historic buildings on the campus. But as part of the design, it's going to retain two historic smokestacks, as well as a power plant building as part of the design. Still, some folks are not happy with this. NCPC Commissioner Peter May, who is the National Park Service's Associate Regional Director of Land and Planning, said that DHS made historic preservation a priority in its original agreement going back to 2008. And the Park Service, he says, is still worried that DHS is really going back on its original promise here. We're very concerned about the commitment of DHS in particular to pursuing adaptive reuse in the deteriorating buildings, historic buildings. What we fear the most is that this is just the first one, right? We've gone through multiple campus plan amendments, and, you know, we are tearing down buildings that were supposed to be preserved in the original plan. And that's Peter May of the National Park Service. But, Jory, just before we move on here, let's clarify that the original main building, the hospital itself, has been rehabilitated, at least the exterior, with a new interior for Maine DHS headquarters, correct? Yeah, that pre-Civil War center building, they really scooped up everything except the exterior walls, and they have that up and running now. That is now the DHS secretary's office, as well as some other DHS main components. Okay, so they saved the bricks anyway on the outside. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, and GSA has plans beyond this too, don't they? They do, yeah. DHS does plan to rehabilitate some of the historic buildings on the campus after constructing the CISA headquarters, and they're really trying to get a critical mass, as they've been saying before, addressing some of the historic elements. 
CISA's headquarters is the first building on the campus to move forward since the commission approved a campus master plan amendment last October. And under this current plan, the construction for the entire campus is supposed to be completed by 2026. So a little bit of a ways away, and it will, you know, hopefully put a closing chapter on this uh, this project here that, it, as you pointed out in the lead, has been going on for more than a decade. Yeah, it goes back to really before the Obama administration. It goes back to the years of the Bush administration, because that's when DHS itself, you know, happened and occurred as an agency. And you mentioned that the construction of the new CISA headquarters will require the destruction of two historic buildings. Is it old? Or are they architecturally significant? I don't know. And keeping those lovely smokestacks. But It sounds like there are more buildings than that that will remain then that GSA is going to rehabilitate. Yeah, there are more buildings that the GSA and DHS both intend to keep around on the campus. And it's a a tricky balance because a lot of these buildings that are historic, they are in worse shape than both agencies originally intended. And so the challenge to mothball these buildings and keep them in some kind of shape for future reuse is quite the challenge here. It's just one of the many challenges going on with this campus. And, you know, budgeting has been a big part of this as well. Congress has only funded about half of what both of these agencies have called for in the life cycle of this project. And so that's led to some really tough moments and some domino effects where component agencies that were planning to move there and should have already been there by now are not yet even, you know, have any kind of presence on the campus. Yeah, it reminds me of that big brick barn behind the new Department of Transportation headquarters down in also in southeast D.C. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but it looks pretty rickety. Anyway, getting back to the old St. E's campus, then what does this new CISA construction mean then for the entire campus? So this is kind of the beginning of the end in some respects. This is with the new construction in place, really kind of fleshing out the whole campus as a whole. It's getting closer to this final goal of 17,000 DHS employees working out of this new campus. And one other of the commissioners that we heard from, Mina Wright, who is the director of the Office of Planning and Design Quality for GSA's Public Building Service, She was looking back at all these challenges that this campus has gone through through all of these years, and she says that the CISA headquarters will finally bring some clarity and some some consolidation into this campus, which was the whole point in the first place. This is a project that has been replete with moments of high drama, but I think it's all been worth it. I'm proud of this building, and our whole team, I think, is really pleased with how it has emerged from this process. I can't wait to see it. And meanwhile, Jory, what about the budgeting for this? So at this point in the fiscal 2022 budgeting plan, DHS and GSA would get $254 million to continue construction and consolidation and all these things with the campus. That is currently in the Financial Services and General Government Spending Bill. And the House Appropriations Subcommittee last month approved that spending bill. So we'll see that play out more in the months to come with the budgeting cycle. Well, if worse comes to worse, they can always call it infrastructure. And who is not moving to the St. Elizabeth's campus from DHS? Notably, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is not moving ahead with that. That is a scoop that we had back in 2019 that this component was intended to move to the St. East campus. Congress appropriated hundreds of millions of dollars for them to build that building. But with all of these delays, FEMA was up against 
it's leases coming due and they ultimately decided they would be better served by sticking with leased buildings that they know are there rather okay. than commit to a new construction that is up in the air. And TSA? TSA, as well as the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, have gone their own way. They have broken ground on headquarters in the suburbs that are not part of this St. E's campus. And so the overall idea years ago to have DHS all under one roof is in some regards elusive here, but they're going to make do with what they can. And Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, they're kind of in limbo. ICE, as well as Customs and Border Protection, the plan is for them to still move to St. Elizabeth's, but we have not heard anything from them just yet. CISA has taken all the spotlight in this regard. All right, don't hold your breath. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. 
and I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank. What if I told you you could get cash back just for being yourself? The U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card lets you customize your rewards to maximize your cash back. Receive up to 5% cash back on the two reward categories that best fit your lifestyle and adjust your cash back selections each quarter as your spending changes. Learn more at usbank.com slash cash plus. Whether you're a movie buff or a gym rat, a foodie or a techie, a homebody or a jet setter, you can earn 5% cash back doing the things you love. Just be yourself and get rewarded. Plus, you'll get 2% cash back on one everyday category like gas stations, EV charging stations, groceries or restaurants. Apply now at usbank.com slash cash plus and discover how you can get a $200 cash back bonus. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. Some restrictions may apply.
Hi, I'm your unused PTO. It's almost the end of the year, and if you don't put me on a timesheet, I will be gone forever. Use me or lose me. Let's get away. It's getaway time. Get our best deals of the season on a new Hyundai. It's your journey. Own every mile at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now, get 0% APR for up to 36 months, plus zero payments for 90 days on select Hyundai vehicles. Hurry to your local Hyundai dealer today. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offer ends 1323. Call 1-562-314-4603 for complete offer details. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.